Bonjour tout le monde. Hey everyone. Today I'm doing an interview in English with a doctor that you might not be familiar with. He's also Canadian. His name is Dr. Stephen Pilek. Um, thanks for being here today with me. Good It's a real morning. pleasure, Louise. We're going to talk about, I wanted to, um, of course, I talked a lot about COVID during the last years. I think there's still a lot to be said. Um, and before we get started, I want you to explain why you do have the expertise to talk about it um, so you can introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you. Well, I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia, where I've been on faculty for about 35 years. And I'm also the the founder of two biotech companies, Kinetech Pharmaceuticals, for, I was the CEO for six years, and then uh, Connexus Bioinformatics Corporation, where I've been the president, chief scientific officer for, we're coming up to 25 years now. And um, I'm also the vice president and the scientific, um, the co-chair of the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Uh, we recently renamed ourselves to the Canadian Citizens Care Alliance. But that group, um, which I chair, which is about uh, 30, 36 different scientists and professors from across the country, over the last three years, we've met by Zoom weekly and also by emails daily. And we go over the scientific literature as related to COVID-19. and. Uh, through my company, Connexus Bioinformatics, we were also conducting a clinical study to look at the uh, antibody response that people have, their immunity to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and comparing this with natural immunity as opposed to vaccine-induced immunity. Mm -hmm. So I've been involved in about uh, at least 25 court cases as an expert witness uh, testifying about natural immunity and any issues related to the vaccines that people have been taking. So that wow. kind of uh, gives you a background of, of my expertise. You, you were also um, a witness on the National Citizen Inquiry. Um, That's correct, yes. I gave a, must have been about an, a little hour presentation going into a deep dive into mm -hmm. the issues related to COVID-19. So, Um, I, I feel like my first question I want to ask is, how is it for you to speak against the narrative, being a professor at a university, how is it like for you in your work? Well, I'm fortunate because I'm on the University of British Columbia Senate, hmm. and uh, I have a very strong track record of being a pretty solid scientist. I've published about 270 scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals. And I, I try to focus on the facts, the science, and looking at the scientific literature to get a sense of what's actually been transpiring. And it, it's very distressing, actually, because when I've been trained as a scientist, we're always supposed to be searching for the truth mm -hmm. and recognizing that as you get more data, maybe you have to change your hypotheses. And I, I, what I've seen instead is that the science has been a little bit more like like um, people investing in the stock market. When you invest in a company, you always have a very positive view of yeah. how that company is going to perform. And that kind of, you know, um, greed, you know, there's fear that, you know, there could be a problem, but there's this greed that you have a very rosy, optimistic view. And I think this is what happened 
with the COVID-19 vaccines, people really thought it was very important to have these vaccines as soon as possible to protect themselves against the disease. Mm -hmm. And they kind of ignored a lot of the hypothetical problems. But then mm -hmm. once these problems actually manifested, they, they try to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, and, still and narratives continued even today. It's pretty amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And that's what we're going to discuss. So there's this um, article that was published in the, in the I think it's in Winnipeg, the Free Press, yes. which I was not familiar with. Um, and it's Bernard Massy that I received on my podcast, who actually put me in touch with you, Dr. Pedek. And um, so you, you reply to this. Th this is called the Unwelcome Unvaxxed. If you guys want to look it up on Google, it's very easy to find and you can read it. I'm going to, so I picked some parts of the article because the whole article is absolutely fascinating in so many ways. And uh, so you replied, I think in, the, in six hours, you had 154 pages reply. So we won't go through the whole document, no. <laughs> but yeah. I think there is a lot of things in there that need to be addressed. Um, a lot of misinformation, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. So yeah. we're going to go through it. <laughs> How did you react when you first read this article? Well, you know, there are been many articles in the past have been published in newspapers um, that have sort of blamed people who chose not to become vaccinated. And I'm, I'm yeah. one of those people. Um, you say it. Open of our population decided not to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And um, as it turns out, these vaccines did not perform as yeah. we originally expected. And so blame had to be given to somebody for the increased amount of people getting COVID-19 after the introduction of the vaccines. And so the unvaccinated people were kind of singled out. I mean, they were the ones that had to do rapid antigen testing. They, they had the restrictions that were placed on them, with the vax passports and the like. Not traveling in the country. Not traveling. Can't. And so um, as it turns out, that didn't really make any difference. Anybody who really understands the disease would, would recognize that, that actually the vaccine, I mean, the bottom line is the vaccines do not prevent you from getting infected. If you become infected, it does not reduce the transmissibility to people from a vaccinated person compared to an unvaccinated person. Mm -hmm. And what's really um, disturbing is that it now appears that the more you're vaccinated with these booster shots, the more likely you will actually get COVID-19. And that's a fact, we know that. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, the best data for this is from the Cleveland Clinic. In um, the summer of 2022, they tracked their staff, 51,000 people. Like This is about 200 hospitals in this network. And they tracked those 51,000 people based on their vaccination status at the beginning of the, of the study for six months. And you can look at the data online. And it shows you that basically the people that were the least likely to get COVID during that six month period were the unvaccinated. And with each increase in vaccination, there was an increased occurrence of COVID-19. So the people that were vaccinated up to five times were the most likely to get COVID during that six month period. 
So that's just one study, but there's many other studies that kind of support the same. And how, how could we explain that? Well, it, it turns out that there's multiple mechanisms that are at play here, but um, three of them are, are key. One of them we called um, original antigenic sin. So what that means is that when you've been exposed to one variant of the virus and you develop an antibody response to it, even if that virus changes slightly in its genetic structure, and I should mention that the structures of the original Wuhan strain, the one that, that everyone um, first heard about this virus and has since evolved into you know alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and then uh, Omicron, and there's a whole bunch more now that are Omicron variants, they're all within 97% identical in their structures. So when you have an immune response, you, your immune response, even to the original Wuhan strain, is actually very effective against even the latest Omicron variants with the natural immunity. So, so what happens is because you've already kind of like primed your immune system with the early variant, when you when you get re-exposed to the virus, you tend to make the antibodies that you originally made against the first variant. Mm -hmm. And so some of them, if there's some variation in the new variants, um, it may not give you as as good an immune response. That's not really a problem, but but this is one explanation. The second one is what we call um, antibody dependent enhancement. And so if you have a immune response that's that's there, but not quite as good because it's very focused on just one part of the virus rather than the whole virus, then what happens is you can have a situation where the virus, when the antibody sticks to um, the virus, it actually allows immune cells to, well, it allows the virus to attach to the immune cell. So, and so instead of the immune cell attacking and destroying the virus, the, the virus can use this as a mechanism to attach to the immune cell to get into the immune cell and kill the immune cell. Hmm. So it kind of is kind of backwards. Right. And so this antibody dependent enhancement, this is well known for coronaviruses. SARS-CoV-1 original studies that were done with it 20 years ago, when they try to develop vaccines, and, and it's like in ferrets, they found that actually those vaccines had antibody-dependent enhancement, which meant that those vaccinated ferrets all died when they were exposed to the virus because wow. the virus was more effective in killing off the immune system than the immune system was killing off the virus. Mm. And then the third mechanism is what we call tolerance. So when you're in an environment that might be seasonal, like pollen could be out there, you can, some people develop allergic responses and they get hay fever. Mm -hmm. and, and the way to break that is to be constantly exposed to the, the allergen and your body begins to recognize that this is not a threat. This is like your own body. Your immune system actually develops uh, the ability to recognize self so that you do not have an immune response against your own cells and, and the proteins on those cells. So when you have a, a vaccine 
where you're getting a delivery of genetic material that is used by your own body cells to produce a foreign protein like the virus protein, spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus on your own cells in very, very high levels, your immune system begins to think that, wait a sec, this is happening on a regular basis. It's a huge amount. The level of spike protein that's produced by these vaccines is actually far greater than you would get from an actual virus infection. Okay. So you get a very good immune response, but but your immune system begins to to sit, shift in its its um, response to what we call tolerance, which means that basically your immune system will ignore that virus when it when you encounter it. So people who have natural immunity, they uh, in fact most children that have been infected have no symptoms yeah. of COVID-19, about 70%. And we know that at least 40% of adults that are infected have no symptoms from the virus. That's a lot. Yes. And what happens is they, they still develop an immune response. And the next time they get it, it's even, again, unlikely unless they're very down from stress or other you know, disease conditions, um, it's unlikely they would get sick again. So that immunity protects them. And as you go out in the environment and the virus is there in waves, as we've seen at least, you know, eight to nine waves in the last three and a half years, then what happens is you're constantly being boosted naturally against mm. the virus. And that, that enhances the level of antibodies that you're producing to protect you while that virus is in the environment mm -hmm. but if that that's called immune memory uh, we have memory b cells and t cells the b cells produce the antibodies the t cells the attack cells that are infected with the virus so the the good news is that these antibodies can last for decades hmm. with antibody producing cells and t cells so you can have immune protection for probably the rest time. of your life yeah. Wow. Now, the problem is that if you induce tolerance, then what you're doing actually is killing off those particular B cells and T cells that specifically recognize the virus. And so as you kill them off, you won't have an immune response that's as effective. So that's when we say that it affects our immune system. That's right. So this is why people with more and more booster shots actually further and further depress their immune system. They have an initial response that's that gets shorter and shorter in its protection period. But ultimately, you end up with a situation where these individuals have lost their immune response to the virus. I understand. Especially the, um, the spike protein, which is the protein that sticks out on the surface of the virus, which is one of the best uh, parts of the virus t for the immune system to attack. Well, that makes that makes sense. And I observe it around me for oh, those yeah. who had a lot of uh, injections, they are very sick. But we're, we're not allowed to to ask any questions or say anything. Um, so you already answered a lot of stuff that was addressed in the in the unwelcome on vax that was published, but I, I'm going to start my reading and then uh, we can just go in depth. Um, so sure. 
I'm going. If you asked me, uh, okay, so I skipped the intro because it was long, but for those of you who want to read it, it's called The Unwelcome Unvaxxed and it was published in the Winnipeg Free, uh, Free Press. And the person who wrote it, her name is Patricia Dawn Robertson. So she says, if you asked me in March 2020 if I'd still be COVID vigilant in January 2024, I'd have scoffed. By 2024, I imagine optimistically the scientists would have an effective vaccine and we would have beat this thing together as a community of caring, concerned citizens. Yet in my age group, 59 to 69, only 27% of Canadians have their booster shot up to date. After almost four years on the pandemic front lines, medical staff are burnt out. Yet many yahoos can be bothered to get a vaccine booster. Unboosted is unvaccinated. Okay, so that's the first part. I want you to comment. Well, you know, the problem has been that the most likely individuals to have acquired natural immunity early on were actually healthcare workers. Mm. And uh, we were involved in a study with the Women's and Children's Hospital in, in Vancouver that also involved the BC Center for Disease Control. And we had developed this, this test for determining whether a person has antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we applied that test to samples of blood samples from about 276 healthy adults, of which maybe only four or five of them had reported any symptoms of COVID-19. And we found that, and when we tested them, this was in basically uh, May 15th, roughly to June 15th of 2020. So okay. nobody had any antibodies at that point from mm -hmm. a vaccine. They had to be mm -hmm. from infection. And 90% of those individuals all had antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And half of those individuals were healthcare workers. Hmm. So we know probably in the Vancouver area that this virus from our own study, we, we've, we've tested about 4,500 people now. And interestingly, of those people, about 1,600 of them reported having symptoms of COVID-19. Now, we didn't have tests available until later in the spring of 2020, uh, the PCR test to confirm that it was actually that virus. Mm -hmm. But if I look at those 1,600 people that had COVID-19-like symptoms, which we can confirm by our antibody testing in their blood samples, all had antibodies against the virus. So I think it's fair to say they were infected. Mm -hmm. Their sickness was three quarters of those individuals was between um, November and December of 2019 and January and February and March of 2020. So although the pandemic officially started in areas March. like Vancouver in March, mm -hmm. <laughs> the virus was already spreading around in our population really for about four months before that. Wow. And we know that even in China in October, mm -hmm. there are reports of, of Wuhan where the city was basically shut down from sickness. And so they had military games going on. So we had, for example, in these military games, a third of the Canadian participants 
Indos and many other countries as well came back sick, very sick mm. uh, from from Wuhan. So that may have been a, one of the major events to first introduce the virus into Canada. And as more samples have been tested from that period, we have lots of evidence that the virus was around at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happened is because of the PCR testing, uh, we we think that the virus, because now we can sequence the genome of the entire virus. It, has, it encodes about 28 different proteins. And so we can have the amino acid sequence of, of the proteins encoded by the 28 genes, and we have the gene sequences as well. And so what was observed is as we started to sequence the genome, it looked like the virus has actually come from Europe rather than from China. Hmm. But we now know that you can have a situation where, for example, in 2021, in November, the predominant variant was the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. And in the space of a month, that variant was displaced with a new variant, which was the first of the Omicron variants. Mm -hmm. We can see even within a month, you can have a dramatic shift. Right in the predominating SARS-CoV-2 virus. Mm-hmm. So so this, so this, what's happened is we know of situations like SARS-CoV-1 that was a pandemic 20 years ago, that you can have the virus infect the community and without any vaccines, without any special drugs that target that virus, it disappeared. Mm. Now, now, this is a bit of a mystery. How can you have a coronavirus that is very, very similar in structure to SARS-CoV-2, although the most similar structure is a, a bat coronavirus, which, by the way, is about 97% identical to SARS-CoV-2. Hmm. But SARS-CoV-2 has sequences, portions, that are very similar to SARS-CoV-1, and some other sequences that are in other coronaviruses, but not in SARS-CoV-1 or MERS, which was another coronavirus that um, caused disease about 10 years ago. So the point here is that that it does look as though SARS-CoV-2 was genetically engineered. Right. We don't have a proof, an absolute proof of that yet. I think pretty much anybody who's really looked at at this in any kind of depth is pretty much convinced now it was a genetically engineered virus. As apart from some of the differences, there are telltale signs in the genetic structure of what we call restriction endonuclease sites. These are sites that genetic engineers use to kind of uh, shuffle portions of genes around and introduce new parts to those genes so i mean it's got all the telltale signs and there's lots of documentation for funding from the national institutes of health in fact in the u.s giving money to the wuhan institute with grants that are describing doing this genetic engineering in the first place so i think it's it's i I think probably 95 percent of people who really study this now are convinced it was a genetically engineered virus it Mm -hmm. was it it was based on the original bat virus that was covered maybe 12 years before the pandemic started, but it, it's been tinkered. So, mm-hmm. so anyways, 
the, the key point here is that we had SARS-CoV-1. It came, it was actually much more deadly than SARS-CoV-2, and it disappeared. You had about 147 or so people that actually died in Canada. That was it. And so what happened? And I think what's happened is that this virus undergoes mutation rates very quickly. And in order for a virus to be um, successful, mm -hmm. it has to infect a lot of people very mm -hmm. easily. And secondly, it can't, it can't hurt those people. That is, the people would not be aware that they're infected. So they will go out and do their normal business and interact with people and spread that virus to another person. So, so even asymptomatic people can can be spreaders? It's possible, but mm -hmm. that's likely because in order to to uh, to release the virus, our body responds when we're sick mm -hmm. to coughing and post-nasal drip and all these things to expel the virus. Mm -hmm. So a person who's really sick is going to be spreading a, a lot more of the virus out there than a person who's asymptomatic. So so there, it's possible for an asymptomatic, asymptomatic person, a person who has no, no symptoms, mm -hmm. to, to spread the virus, but the bulk of that viral spread is going to come from people who are actively sick. Mm -hmm. And this has been well documented in studies within families where, interestingly, in a household in China, we could tell even in the first few months of the, of the pandemic that only about 18% of the people in the household actually mm -hmm. got sick. So, and they were starting to do the PCR tests at that time. So we could tell if they were actually infected at the time. Mm -hmm. So asymptomatic people, um, They, they rarely are going to be the major sources of the spread of the virus. Fauci said that uh, very early in the, in the COVID crisis, but then he changed his mind and the video was still circulating online. But at the end of the day, that's the truth. Well, I think what happened is a lot of us in the scientific community um, relied on early data that we had with coronaviruses and mm -hmm. also influenza virus and and uh, the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, mm -hmm. which are infectious viruses that, that come in through the airways and their respiratory illnesses. And so these viruses are very similar in their properties, size-wise, and, and uh, even being RNA viruses in the case of influenza and, and SARS-CoV-2, they're, they're almost the same size virus. They're both RNA viruses. Mm -hmm. um, so we know a lot about influenza, you know. Right. And as it turns out, we knew even that the masks don't work with influenza. There's and still a debate around that. Like so, some people will say that uh, masks still work. Well, and I'll get to that in the text. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you think about the mask? It's it's. Well, I've written a 47-page review going through hundreds of scientific papers on the effectiveness of these masks. And actually the data really doesn't support it. I mean, Fauci did, didn't think the masks worked originally. Uh, 
I know Bonnie Henry here in British Columbia, who's our chief medical doctor, argued that they didn't work because she knew the scientific literature. They all turned around and said that these are very effective. But when you start to look at the, the actual clinical studies that have been done on the effectiveness of these masks, and this was all of these studies were um, critically analyzed in what we call meta reviews. This is where you take many scientific papers and you, you combine the data. Mm-hmm. And there's a Cochrane study, which is sort of one of the, um, the groups that actually do the most rigorous analysis with meta analyses. They concluded, and this was published about a year ago, that these masks, there's no, there's no real benefit like N95s, surgical masks, cloth masks. Doesn't make a difference. no data to support that these are actually effective. Okay, so for those of you who are still driving your car alone with a mask on your face, you just, you can't breathe for nothing, basically. No, well, it actually comes at a cost because there Mm -hmm. are issues for people that are wearing masks, especially they're very active. What Mm -hmm. happens is, like the in the air, the concentration of oxygen is about 21%. Now, and by the way, some people say, well, they wear, they wear surgical masks, and these people are working for hours mm-hmm. in a, in a surgery, surgical suite. Right. But the concentration of oxygen in those suites is 23.5%. So it's controlled. Very, very high levels of oxygen to compensate for the obstruction that the masks do if they went any higher then the surgical suite could catch fire because mm-hmm. the more oxygen you have mm-hmm. the more likely that you you can have a fire mm-hmm. so but these typically with 21 percent oxygen in our atmosphere the concentration of carbon dioxide is 0.04 percent of what's in the atmosphere so when you breathe in oxygen that oxygen is used uh, along with the food you eat like sugars Mm -hmm. to make basically energy for your body yeah and and in doing so it produces carbon dioxide so -hmm. when you breathe out you breathe out about 16 percent oxygen and five percent carbon dioxide so when you have that mask on, even though gases can go through the mask, you still have air currents that happen and obstruction. Mm-hmm. So you rebreathe the air that you expired along with the air that's coming in also through the mask. That explains the headaches that we all have. That's when right. We... So you end up with lower oxygen in your blood, higher carbon dioxide in your blood, Mm-hmm. that will give you brain fog and 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 so when you have children that are in school and they're wearing masks all the time and children have a higher metabolic rate than adults do they need to breathe more oxygen mm-hmm. so what ends up happening is their learning is compromised right and then people who wear masks like if you have a a beard the masks right. don't work if uh-huh. you when you put them on and you you if you were coughing or something like that then it has to go somewhere. So it actually mm-hmm. goes behind you. So mm-hmm. when when you're in a mask and you, you turn away from somebody, 
you're actually you, you aim in a different direction basically to, to the person behind you nice so so there's, so there's, there's that, acne problems there's skin yeah. problems there's collection of bacteria yeah it actually it, it causes probably more harm than good by wearing it you didn't even mention all the young children that are learning to speak that that can see the That's the right. mouth and you know That's i had right. young babies during the past years so uh, that was a big concern to me and it's been also studied that um the the kids who couldn't see the mouth would have problem learning a language so there's a lot the psychological issues that are great and and th those have been well studied too and there's increased anxiety in people hmm. when they're around people with masks and and that increased anxiety causes depression mm -hmm. and that reduces your immune system yeah so it's just a big circle it, exactly it just reinforces this and and it just gets worse so this is um this is a of concern I think there are situations where masks do make a difference, like especially for bacterial type infections. Bacteria are about 10 times larger. Oh. But if you look at the size of the virus versus the size of the pores in the mask, it's the equivalent of, of using a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes. It just <laughs> does not work. It doesn't even even if you want really hard, it's not going to work. I'm going to go on with the reading of the article. And thanks for the, the mass. People are really appreciating in the comments. Um, so it goes on. Others reject the concept of vaccination entirely and stoke fear via conspiracy theories. I'm not done with that, but only the, the word theory here annoys me because there's a lot of there's a lot of substance and facts now, but everything goes in the big bag of conspiracy theories. Six months delay between a theory becoming a fact. <laughs> and yeah, well, we'll, we'll keep going, but there's so much to say. Um, a belligerent branch of my extended family remains unvaccinated. The rational, the concerned mother of three needs to know what's in the vaccines. The 30-something urbanite is a rebellious millennial, millennial who demands full disclosure. But this isn't a cereal box on the breakfast table. It's a vaccine. The ingredients are patented, tested, and approved by Health Canada. So they there's must be safe. Lot, and there's a lot back in there. Yes. Actually, um, I, I get vaccinated for for. For flu, I mean, I I think vaccines in general are are pretty effective, and they've been useful. Although there has been a lot of data that shows that many of the reductions in these diseases that plagued humanity were already on the way down before the vaccines are really started to be introduced. But there are situations where I think clearly the vaccines are can be very effective. I'm not so sure that a young child, a uh, a baby. Uh, needs to be vaccinated. Some of these kids are getting up to 80 or more vaccines. No, that's way too much. Yeah, and I think that's probably not appropriate. Right. Because your immune system is learning to recognize viruses and bacteria that are out there and fungi. Mm -hmm. But, but the, the, there's a big difference, people have to understand, between the, the vaccines that were approved in Canada which were basically pretty much until Medicago came along uh, and 
Novavax. These were more traditional type vaccines. Mm -hmm. But the ones that most people got, we call these genetic vaccines. But it never got on the market anyway. So That's right. No, this is a big, <laughs> this is a big scandalous. I mean, right. hundreds of millions of dollars were spent to... In Quebec. In Quebec, mm -hmm. to produce the plants. There was no single delivery exactly. to Canadians. And it, they just voted that we won't, they won't disclose why. So there is just nothing to be said. Yeah. We just turn the page and keep going. Well, I think the big problem was that the vaccine was uh, done using tobacco um, leaves and the World Health Organization would not support anything that would mm. encourage the use of, of tobacco. tobacco. <laughs> so they okay. were doomed from the start. Right. I interrupted that, you. Sorry. That was no, just a, a little parenthesis. Yeah. No, but it's a good point. Uh, with the, I mean, if people understood exactly the process, they'd be astounded. So let me <laughs> illuminate uh, people on it. So first of all, we have two types of these genetic vaccines. Mm -hmm. One is they use lipid nanoparticles, basically little fat bags that have the genetic material to make the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or they have the genetic material in an adenovirus that's been engineered that when this virus is like a delivery system, it, it just gets that genetic material into a cell, but it doesn't replicate. The virus can't duplicate. So it's a, a fairly safe virus. Now, the thing is, in both scenarios, so you have the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, which are the ones that use the lipid nanoparticles, and you have the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or Janssen vaccine, which uses the adenovirus particles. Now, the adenovirus particles can only be used once or twice mm -hmm. because after you've used them and your body makes an immune response to the virus, then the next time that you get infected, or so you inject it with the virus in the vaccine, your immune system destroys the virus before it can actually get inside cells. So mm -hmm. you're, you're stuck with booster shots, pretty much have to be from these lipid nanoparticles that contain yeah. the RNA, this genetic material to make the spike protein. So what most people don't understand is that when you get those vaccines, you're injecting into your deltoid muscles in your arm uh, typically about uh, tens of trillions of lipid nanoparticles. Imagine the lipid nanoparticles pretty much like a, a virus. So you're, you're injecting tens of trillions of copies. Now, if you have a traditional vaccine and you're injecting what is usually a weakened form of the virus or some, or it's been heat killed, uh, what happens is you're getting maybe 50 to a few thousand copies hmm. of that virus, not tens of trillions. Wow, of it's not now, even close. Now, well, when you have a, a virus, you have one copy of the gene hmm. that is going to be used to, to make the viral protein. But in the lipid nanoparticles, you have five to 10 copies of the gene. Now, the gene has been modified chemically so that it has a non-natural component that makes that RNA more stable. Hmm. So the RNA is like a blueprint to make the spike protein. Hmm. 
And you're making that blueprint uh, more stable in the body so that you can make more copies from that from a single copy of the gene. You can make hundreds of copies of the protein from that. And those proteins are going to be produced inside the cell, but exported to the surface of the cell. So your, your body, your immune system, sees these cells that have a foreign protein on their surface. And so the normal response will be an immune attack against those cells. Mm -hmm. And in order to, to eventually develop um, stimulated T cells and B cells that produce antibodies, you have to attack the cells that are producing the, the spike protein and produce little pieces of those cells, obviously damaging or even destroying those cells that can be engulfed, eaten up by what we call um, antigen presenting cells that will then stimulate the T cells and the B cells in the lymph nodes. Now that by itself is problematic, but what's even more problematic is that those lipid nanoparticles that are injected in your arm, we know from studies that are done in, in rats and mice, that they travel mm -hmm. throughout your entire body. And within two days of injection, 76% at least of those lipid nanoparticles are everywhere in your brain. The most concentrated is the liver, the spleen, the adrenals, the ovaries. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very high concentrations. And of course, that means that and we know from immunohistochemistry studies where we can visualize where the spike protein is in tissue slices from people who have died hmm. following vaccination, that this is in their brain, this is in their heart, this is in the, heart a lot. the entire body. This is, explains for uh, myocarditis. Right. If you're a male and you're between ages 12 to 29, your chances of getting symptomatic myocarditis, this is where you can be fainting, um, could even die. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's actually about one in 2000. That's a lot. For, for males between like say 12 and 29 with the Moderna vaccine, but one in 5,000 with the Pfizer vaccine. No, that's bad. That's, that's very, very bad. bad. Yeah. Knowing how many people are vaccinated. Where they follow people who've had vaccine-induced myocarditis. The lethality rate is about 4.5% in the first year. Hmm. And we know with other myocarditis that the risk continues. So typically after six years with myocarditis, the, the rate of death is about 20%. So... Now, wait, wait, just to understand. So you mean that if you had a symptomatic myocarditis, it will follow you for all your life and you might die from it? Is that what I understand? That's right. And the reason is this. Myocarditis is where your immune cells are infiltrating your heart muscle. Uh, it's the, either the, the inside heart muscle or the outside of the heart has a muscle. That's the pericardium. Yeah, you can have myopericarditis or you can have myocarditis. And so what's happening is the immune cells are attacking the muscle cells and mm. they're killing the muscle cells 
Now, there may be some cases damage and, and you can get some recovery. And I think this is what a lot of people were hoping was the case with myocarditis. But, but in reality, what happens is that those cells are killed. They're not replaced by new muscle cells. They're mm -hmm. replaced by scar tissue. Mm. When you have death of neurons or you have death of these uh, cardiomyocytes, these heart muscle cells, then what happens is they they can't divide and have replacement of exactly the same cells. You have other cells that replace it. In the case of the heart, it's scar tissue. So the sur surviving muscle cells have to get bigger. Now, when you exercise, your muscles get bigger. Well, you're not getting more muscle cells. You're, the right. existing muscle cells are actually getting larger. Mm -hmm. so this is what happens in your heart. These, these surviving muscle cells get larger to compensate for the need to pump that blood through your body, and the heart gets bigger. And as the heart gets bigger, there's more chances of actually uh, causing uh, arteriosclerosis from the high blood pressure when you're really exerting yourself. But in the case of myocarditis, if you have damage in certain parts of the heart, you can get what's called arrhythmia of the heart. So mm -hmm. instead of the chambers of the heart beating in unison to pump the blood through, they can be pumping against each other. Mm. And the blood doesn't go. And that's why a person will faint because they're not getting the oxygen mm. that happens. Now, for every case of symptomatic myocarditis, you may have about three cases of asymptomatic myocarditis. So what is that means as dangerous? The damage, but they haven't had an episode to be aware that they've okay. had any damage. Mm -hmm. There was a study done um, in um, uh, Bangkok a few years ago now, where they they followed children that were 13 to I think it was 18 years of age. There was about 301 children in the study. Uh, 201 of them were males, and and 100 were females, and they found that 29% of those children had heart issues after they were vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. And of those... When was the study? Was it recent? It was about a year and a half ago. Okay. Right. So this has actually been around for a while. A lot of people know yeah. about the study. It's published yeah. in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. So what, what you find in that study they seven of those children had myocarditis they can you can you can detect it by imaging of the heart or the measurement of blood proteins like troponin which is produced in the heart which is not normally in your blood unless your heart's damaged and so they found that seven of those 201 males actually had um myocarditis or pericarditis. Most of them were actually uh, myopericarditis. But that works out to one in 29. That's a lot. Had asymptomatic myocarditis. And we're so, still injecting kids. Yes, even six-month-old babies. Now, what's happened is around the world, this data is out there. So health officials in other countries have actually no longer recommend vaccination of children. In fact, some countries don't even recommend vaccination of adults. Well, Florida, well, it's not a country, Florida's but it's a one, state. But, you know, the, yeah. the Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, Australia. 
Australia? Uh, they yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. They They've been very, very far. Nation of children. Wow. And the list just goes on. But and, not here. But not here. We're actually one of the most highly vaccinated populations in the world. That's worrisome. It is. And, you know, the, the data is showing that, the first of all, there's no correlation between the rate of vaccination and the rate of COVID-19. You would expect that if you had more vaccinated, you'd have less COVID-19. There's mm -hmm. no relationship at all. Mm -hmm. The other problem is that we're seeing that there's an increase since the introduction of the vaccine. So not in the first year of the pandemic, when this virus was unchecked by mm -hmm. any vaccines, but with the introduction of the vaccines, we see an increase in all-cause mortality in Canada and actually in many other countries around the world. Where they vaccinated a lot. 10 to 15% increases in death. You said 10 to 15? 10 to 15 percent yes that, that's pretty intense yes now it's it's starting to go down a little bit okay. as the, as the vaccines are less taken up by people right so we have a correlation between this occurring when the vaccines come and as the vaccines are no longer being used we're seeing it, it decline so that's mm -hmm. a pretty good correlation i mean when you look at the data in vaccine injury databases like the VAR system in the United States or the Vigi Access system, which is with the World Health Organization or Eurovigilance with the European Medicines Agency. These are all databases where doctors generally, but sometimes individuals can report injuries in response to vaccines. Now, if you take all of the 30 years of data in the VAR system, and there's about 80 different vaccines that are covered there. There are more reports of injuries and deaths with the COVID-19 vaccines than all of the other vaccines put together for the last 30 years. Hmm. So we know also with Pfizer's own data, so after they market it, they're, they're a vaccine, they have to, take these reports and provide the reports back to the government. And so these reports finally were revealed to the general public after a judge in the U.S. ruled that they had to release these documents. Because they we wanted them concealed for 75 years, I believe. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. Uh, so they gave them eight months to do it. And uh, there that's are, better. Uh, it, there's there's tens of thousands of documents that have gone through the people of finding all these things. So there's, we know these vaccines, we know how they could cause injury. Yeah. Explain. We know they do cause injury because the databases show us that. And we and still we inject them. It's not preventing people from getting COVID-19. In fact, it's increasing their chances of getting COVID-19. Um, we just answered Zian's question, but I wanted to put that on the screen. Um, she lost her best friend after just one injection. So yeah. I, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I know a lot of people are in this situation where it's very hard to make the direct connection. Some doctors won't do it. Um, yeah, well, there's a, there's a problem here in that, first of all, I, I explained how it is that people can um, lose their immune to the virus with repeated 
vaccine injections. Mm -hmm. There's also the other side of the equation, which is when you are in a pandemic and the virus is in the environment and you go and get vaccinated, the first week and a half, you're more likely to get infected by the virus hmm. right after you're vaccinated. The reason for this is that imagine that you're, you've just been vaccinated. These lipid nanoparticles that travel throughout your body. As a result, you're producing all this spike protein on the surface of your cells. Now, during that period, you get infected with the virus. It comes in through your nose and mouth. But what happens is your immune system is very mobile. So it goes to where the action seems to be. And the action is primarily in the rest of your body, not mm -hmm. in your nose and the airways and passages. So that gives an opportunity for the virus to replicate. And being at that point where it can be, uh, again, released back into the environment, a person who's just been vaccinated while the virus is out there in the environment is more likely to actually transmit that virus to somebody else than an unvaccinated person. Now, an unvaccinated person, if you've been vaccinated and you get COVID-19 during that first two weeks or even three weeks in British Columbia, we considered you unvaccinated. Unvaxed. Mm -hmm. So the data from those people is mixed in with the data for people who are truly unvaccinated. So that becomes very hard to know what's the truth. Right. So so there is studies that have been done, and the best is out of the United Kingdom. They published this about uh, maybe six, well, eight, nine months ago. And there we can follow the vaccination status of a person and the likelihood that they were developing COVID and also linked to all-cause mortality. And what we can see is that, that as you are more vaccinated, your chances of dying from all causes is higher and also getting COVID-19 is higher from that, that data. So this is very much like the Cleveland Clinic data that I told you about earlier, but right. this is really well quantified. Mm -hmm. So in Alberta Health, they actually tracked the for people who had been vaccinated and they got COVID-19 again, when did they most likely get COVID-19? And what that data showed very, very clearly is that in the first day after vaccination, your risk goes up a little bit. And then the second day, it goes even higher. And then third and fourth and fifth and sixth days to the ninth day, the risk increases that you get COVID-19. And then it peaks for a couple of days, and then it drops down. And it drops down because by that point, you're starting to produce a, a strong immune response that's going to be protective. But that first you know, 10 days, you're actually increasing your risk of getting COVID-19. And that's why we know so many people who got injected and then got COVID. That's, that's just right. a classic and then, scenario. And they're all mixed again with the unvaccinated. And now for right. people that have been already exposed to the virus, they already have a strong immune response. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first time that an individual gets vaccinated now, they're producing these spike proteins on the surface of their cells and they have a strong immune response from the natural infection they had earlier. Now they're getting a very 
strong inflammatory attacks on their own cells. Mm -hmm. Much more damage to those tissues than had they never been exposed to the virus before and developed natural immunity. Mm -hmm. Of course, that immunity, that attack will get even stronger and stronger as you get more and more boosting Mm -hmm. uh, to attack your own cells. And, you know, the problem with these vaccines is that first, I didn't even talk about the contamination in these vaccines that we've learned about. It turns out that they, they have DNA in there. The DNA was used to make the RNA that was during the manufacturing of the virus. But the DNA, it if it gets incorporated into your cells, and there's and we know it does. Huh? copies of the DNA that are in those each inoculation, mm-hmm. along with the trillions of copies of the RNA. But the, but you can keep making the RNA mm-hmm. if when if you're taking up that DNA plasmid in in your cells and, and your can, ovaries it, in your ovaries, and it'll continue to produce more RNA from the DNA. And from the RNA, you make the protein. So you can mm-hmm. do that indefinitely. And so, pass that to your children. if. Um, probably not. No, I had I had different uh, perspective on that on my podcast. Well, first of all, if you have cells that have taken up um, the vaccine, you can have some of the DNA in there, right? But you can have a lot of the RNA. And the RNA is going to be producing the spike protein on the surface of those cells. So the what you're going to pass on to your children is basically going to be from uh, an infected egg, you know, infected with the vaccine. Well, those eggs are going to be attacked by the immune system and taken out. So they're not. So they're not going to get to fertilized, and you're not going to have a baby. That's so. That's very, very unlikely. Very unlikely. Yes. Yeah. So but that's still a possibility. That. But I see what you mean. But the problem is, look, when you're a young baby girl, you're born with all of the oocytes that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so what happens is when you you get through puberty and and now, you, you know, a woman starts to have their periods. Well, with each period, you're having the conversion of one of those oocytes into a fertilizable egg. Sometimes with twins, you have two of them, right? So, but a woman will have about 400 periods in her life. Her periods end when she runs out of oocytes. And you may start with tens of thousands of oocytes in the baby, but most of those oocytes will die off over time. Mm -hmm. And so the concern I have is that, well, if you have an immune attack against the ovaries, and we already know that there's something fishy going on here because about 40% of women that are vaccinated have issues with their periods. Um, menstrual periods. Right. And so this is controlled, your periods, by your pituitary gland in your brain, hypothalamus, and your ovaries. They produce hormones that basically regulate the period. Right. And so that the fact that those are disturbed indicates mm-hmm. that there is effects probably on the ovaries. Mm-hmm. And if you have an inflammatory attack against the ovaries, you could have damage to the oocytes. Right. You could have a scenario where basically women will go into menopause much earlier in life. Right. These are hypothetical risks. I hope that you know I'm wrong about this, 
-hmm. But everything tells me that for a number of women, this is going to be a major issue in the future. And that's that brings me back to this article. So for those who just joined us, uh, joined us, we are um, replying to an article that was published in the Winnipeg Free Press. Um, it's an opinion. Um, and we were just reacting to the fact that she is mad at someone in her family who's a mother who didn't want to get her children vaccinated because um, she wants to know what's in the vaccine. I am a mother of two very young kids and I don't know how it's possible to blame a mother for wanting to protect her children. I don't know what's wrong with our society, but I think that a mother who's protecting her kids should just be honored and, you know, applaud, nothing else. So that was just my my opinion about that. We'll, I'll keep going with the... With well, I think I like to, Eloise, bring out firstly that you always use the principle of precaution when mm -hmm. you're dealing with especially pregnant women and yeah. and young ba babies uh you, you don't do experimental therapies now you brought up earlier about well this is health canada approved people need to understand what was that approval process and yeah, they need to go ahead <laughs> yeah the canadian government basically negotiated in the summer of 2020 with uh, seven different manufacturers of vaccines before they even had a product to secure enough vaccine doses to inoculate the entire population with seven shots per person. And then since then, they, it actually increased to 10 shots per person. Now, as it turns out, that was done in the summer. And it wasn't until the end of November that Health Canada approved the use of these vaccines for people it, with an interim order. Now, an interim order, you do not have to demonstrate that the product is safe and you do not have to demonstrate that the product is effective. But they kept you, repeating it's safe and effective, so it must be true. Well, no, you do not require that with an interim order. You have to look at the balance of information that's available versus what's perceived to be the threat. And then you make a decision based on that. So the clinical data that was available to Health Canada to make their decision was only two months of studies where they had injected people. Uh, let's say the Pfizer study had about um, around 40,000 people in it. And, you know, about 20,000 20, roughly were vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccine and you had about 20,000 placebo. And in that study, it was the first two months of that study, the data that they used. And they used what's called relative risk reduction versus absolute risk reduction. Mm. So relative risk reduction is really based on the idea that in your study, out of the number of people that, that uh, were in the study, how many of them got infected in the vaccinated group versus the unvaccinated group? And so this is where they get these numbers of 95% reduction. However, the number of people who actually infected in both groups compared to the number of people that retract over six months ultimately is only a, 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 like barely a percent. So the actual risk reduction worked out to 0.8% of the population that was in the study by being vaccinated versus being unvaccinated. So what does that mean? 
It means that if you vaccinate, like let's say the entire population of the country, during that six month period of time, you would have only reduced the occurrence of the COVID infection by 0.8%. The other people would just, most of them would just never gotten infected in the first place. Or if they did, they'd have no symptoms. Yeah. But more people died in the vaccinated group in that six month study. More people that were vaccinated than unvaccinated. The risk of having a severe injury that required hospitalization in the vaccinated group was about 5%. Hmm. And about 70% of them had symptoms that affected them, at least, you know, we call them mild, but you no, know, they couldn't go to work or they couldn't do things for a day or two. So when you compare that to the number of people that got get COVID and mm -hmm. have no symptoms at yeah. all, and you're still function. more likely to be ill <laughs> yeah. from the, uh, the vaccine than you are from actually the virus. This is the, the absurdity of it. Now, there's a lot of absurdities, but that's one of them. <laughs> yes. So, but anyways, the, the key point here is that we did not know, Health Canada did not know, mm -hmm. for example, that there was SV40. Mm -hmm. uh, now they do. In the, in, in the, the plasmids that were used to make the RNA that goes in the vaccine, and these plasmids are contaminating the uh, vaccines. Mm-hmm. It was not disclosed by yeah. far. Uh, a lot of data was not disclosed. We have more data that there could be endotoxin from. In fact, this is what's really fascinating. The original material that was used for the clinical trials was done by what we call process one, which is a different method that's much more clean, less likely to have issues. Mm -hmm. um, then the process two, which is how they scaled up the the production of the vaccine to make it for mass mass production, it's a completely different process. Yeah, and it introduces like the the, the DNA plasmid that I mentioned earlier was not in process one, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of variability from batch to batch as they start to track the reports in the virus system and other systems for vaccine injury, different batches of the vaccine had very different rates mm -hmm. of vaccine reported injury. So this is the, the problem. We don't actually have proper testing. And I discussed this. The, the mass produced batches that most people got. And I discussed for those who um, barely or understand English, but are more comfortable in French, uh, what you just said, I discussed this with Uh, Dr. Uh, Patrick Provost, Bernard Massy, and Alexandra Henrion Code. Um, so these are topics that I went in depth in different uh, interviews. Um, so very interesting. There's so much to say, and I see the time. And I want to. Uh, there are other points I wanted to address in her her article. So I'm going to read a little bit more of it and give you the the, the reply after give you the mic. So she says, uh, just for those who just joined, her name is Patricia Dawn Robertson, and uh, we are just replying to her. Uh, it was published in the Winnipeg Free Press. So what she says uh, to those who don't want to get vaccinated is, it's not just about you. The complete lack of, con of concern for other is repugnant. 
We don't just vaccinate to self-protection, for self-protection, but to protect the vulnerable. <laughs> the refusal to vax is selfish. It's reckless and it's burdening our overtaxed healthcare system as if that is our personal problem. Um, and she goes on, I'm here to call out the, the unvaccinated. It's been four years. I'm tired of nodding my head patiently while they spout misinformation and ignoring rationales. I now equate the two unvaccinated equals COVID carrier. There's yeah, a lot in well, there too. Complete, unfortunately, she's just not that well informed. And, uh, and, but and, they, and she's been the published. professionals have you know, agencies have been actually the major spreaders of misinformation. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's very. Um, I mean, I I've been in involved in this in drug development, and my company we've been made we've made about sixteen hundred different antibodies against cancer proteins and neuro, proteins involved in neurological disorders to help facilitate research in the area. So I'm really familiar with. All this kind of um, area, and I've illustrated, I exemplified that with some of our discussion. I think the reality is that these vaccines, the technology, the RNA technology with these lipid nanoparticles, is dangerous. Mm -hmm. This does not just apply to COVID 19. And there are literally hundreds of new vaccines that are under development right now. Mm -hmm. using this newer technology which is the most alarming part i believe yes because it's this is never first of all these rna vaccines have never been used before in any studies for any other disease this is the first time and it's been largely tested um normally when you have a vaccine in development it takes 10 years to to really get that going that was before right Basically, these vaccines in, in less than 10% of the time were on the market. Now, the, the claim was, well, because of the technology, we can move so much faster. That's complete nonsense because in, in China, with Sinovac and, and, and some of the other vaccines they have and, and Russia as well, they're using traditional vaccines that were, that were on the market faster than these RNA vaccines that we used in North America. Hmm. and Europe. So that's that's complete nonsense. And I think, you know, Bernard Massé, he, he'd tell you that because he was working with the NRC. I should mention that Bernard and Dr. Provost, mm -hmm. they're, they're members of the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. These are the, mm -hmm. these are the kind of people that, you know, we, we discuss these things. Yeah. You no, know, we're very um, critical. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to make sure that we're right. We're not going to go out there and and, and spread information that's wrong. You know, once you start to have information that you give that's wrong, mm -hmm. you completely lose your credibility. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to make it's, sure it's bulletproof. It's not in your best interest to do that. And you're going against a very strong narrative as well. So you want to make sure that you bring very strong evidence when you say something. Exactly. You'd be surprised mm -hmm. at how few number of people are actually behind that narrative. But the way the system works, you know, if you're a medical doctor, and let's say you wanted to prescribe ivermectin for treatment of, for a patient, or you had reservations about taking the vaccine, 
the colleges for physicians and surgeons or for nurses and midwives and even pharma pharmacists there you are reprimanded if you discourage the use of these vaccines you can lose your license and there's many doctors in canada that have that's exactly happened to them and they've been reprimanded so and at the same time there's a huge incentive cash incentive for doctors to give vaccines to their their patients they actually make a lot of money in the united states the average doctor make over $150,000 extra a year a year if they got their their patients to get vaccinated so you have a very large carrot and you have a very large stick and so you can't be surprised that a lot of the people, especially doctors, they're not involved in the research. They're not, they see patients, they follow guidelines that are, are given uh, what they read in the scientific literature. Pretty much most of the literature that, you know, it's peer reviewed journals, but there's a pressure in those journals to go and support the pharmaceutical companies because they're major advertisers in yeah. those that's the big conflict of interest there there's a huge huge conflict of interest and of course even the regulatory agencies this is especially in the united states you have like a revolving door between whether you're employed by the pharmaceutical industry or whether you're in a key position in mm -hmm. regulatory affairs you know for government and many of those people are going to be adverse to being too critical about the industry and about in Canada and the United States, you know, we're looking at about 70 to 80% of the costs of approval of a, of a drug or a vaccine is paid for by the manufacturer. Now we could say, well, look at all the money that we're saving um, for the Canadian taxpayer or the US taxpayer, but you're putting your regulatory agency in where, you know, the hand that's feeding them. Yeah. You're not going to bite it of course no so they're not going to necessarily act in the best interest of the general public so this is a mm -hmm. this is a problem i think that i really do believe that our our health professionals our regulatory agencies they're doing what they think is in the best interest of the public but i think that they're misguided mm -hmm. and and there's a lot of pressure especially political pressure yeah to get these things done and uh we're looking for these kind of solutions and and there's too much influence conflict of interest from big pharma in this unfortunately well you said uh, earlier that some countries completely changed their Sorry. their way of doing uh you even mentioned australia was not aware of it i know australia refused novak djokovic uh you know they went very far in oh, there yeah, so it was new zealand and they've come completely 180 degrees now in New Zealand. so that's possible and i thought you know australia and canada have a lot in common so yeah. what will it take for things to change here in canada well, in switzerland if you if a doctor wants the patient to get vaccinated for COVID-19, the government makes the doctor responsible if there's any injury. The, uh -huh. And they don't recommend vaccination for anybody. But here they're not responsible, the doctors? They're, well, the vaccine companies, this actually 
um, in the agreements that people would be surprised by the agreements that are secret, but we know what the agreements are because it's the same agreement used in different countries. Mm -hmm. So the Canadian agreement, I'm sure, is very similar. Mm. What we do know is that the payment for the cost of these vaccines in the United States and in Europe was around 18 to $24, depending upon, you know. Um, yeah. Now, we know from the Auditor General's report in Canada that the average cost of a vaccine was $38 per shot. Now, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson vaccines in these other countries is very cheap. We're talking about 5 to $6. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that Canadians paid for the Pfizer vaccines and the Moderna vaccines mm. more than $38. So we probably paid the highest rates in the world. But in all of those agreements, there is uh, there is immunity from, from prosecution of yeah. vaccine injury to the manufacturers. But what about the doctors, though? That's more my question because some of them are pushing it. They have a they have a, a protection from the standpoint that that the government of Canada, Health Canada, has recommended them, so they can always point to that. They can point to the government. Now the government has a program to help individuals that have been vaccine injured, but there's been very very few people where they've been recognized as being vaccine injured. I know a lot of people write to me and say, you know, I know I have an injury due to the COVID injection, but my doctor won't sign the papers. Um, he won't admit. He says sort sort of off the record, it's probably this, but and then they have a lot of problem to get uh, help. They're stuck well, with. Well, for example, um, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario basically took Patrick Phillips, who had filed, I think it was about seven reports of vaccine injury. And he was basically, his license was removed to be. That's how bad it is. By, because he, they claimed he was, he, his, his reports were um, not, not necessarily false, but, but that basically they told, contacted the people afterwards that they should go and get vaccinated. Same is true for Charles Hoff in British Columbia. He he filed 11 reports of injury, and he is now facing disciplinary action with the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons. That's these are these kind of court cases I get involved in because it's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. And it's it takes a lot of courage to, you know, to go against a narrative like those people are doing. Um, and I wonder what it's gonna take. Like I'm not I don't want to say that I want people to go to prison and I'm not I'm not mad, but mm -hmm. I want people to understand that these are dangerous. We know that. Stop stop injecting kids and pregnant women, first of all there to me this is like the most uh, important thing um and i won't i don't know what it's gonna take for people to change their narrative like you know we have a show in quebec it's called tout le monde en parle which is everybody it's called basically it means everybody talks about it so it's very uh, watched and they had a um a pharmacist who has a tv show here this weekend and he was talking about 
Dr. Montagnier, I'm sure you know Montagnier in France, uh, he passed away during the, right. the last years. Nobel Prize winner. Exactly. And he, he was against, you know, the vaccine, if we can call them like that. And so th they were just talking in a very bad way about this man. And they were, you know, doing misinformation on CBC. That's the French part of it is Radio Canada. And I was like, we're in 2024. We know for a fact that he was right. And there are so many things that were being said in this segment and people were nodding and talking about those crazy conspiracy theorists. And they're still creating so much division. And I wonder what's, what's it going to take to reopen the conversation? Well, there's, there's been national citizens inquiries. That, mm -hmm. you know, for example, Dr. Bernard Massey was, was one of the commissioners. Yeah. They wrote a very massive report. We had over 305 witnesses. A hundred of them were experts. I was, I was one of them. Yeah. And you and, do. And the thing is, you know, the, the truth eventually surfaces. Sometimes... Mm -hmm. You know inconveniently late yeah but you know we have two victims here we have those that are unvaccinated that were unfairly treated and then we have those that are vaccinated mm -hmm. that unfortunately will always wonder when they have an illness in the future was that because i was vaccinated mm -hmm. and it, in, in many cases it won't be it will be other things but in some cases it will be true and uh, we have a lot of people that have long covid now we don't know if that long COVID was, for example, exacerbated by being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I suspect that's the case. We seem to have more percentages of long COVID cases. Can you tell us what's the long COVID exactly? Long COVID is where you have symptoms following an infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus that persists beyond a month. And in most cases, they're resolved in about eight months. Okay. Uh, there are some that go on beyond that. Usually it's people that have an existing comorbidity, mm -hmm. some sort of disease. And by being infected or by being uh, vaccinated, it exacerbates that condition. You know, we, we, we signal out these individuals in the first place because we think that they're at greater risk of severe injury from the mm -hmm. virus, but they're also at increased risk of severe injury from the vaccine too. Mm -hmm. So it's very complicated. We know that some of these cases of long COVID seem to be treatable in part by inhibitors of the virus. So that could be um, ivermectin. Some people have data showing that that can be helpful, but but there are medications like Paxlovid, which was developed specifically to stop the replication of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And this can be partly effective in people with long COVID. So what that means is those individuals must still be having active virus in their systems that's contributing to their symptoms mm -hmm. to get that kind of um, relief from taking that antiviral. So mm -hmm. to me, that suggests that their immune systems are compromised so that the virus just keeps replicating at very low levels enough to cause the illness in these individuals. So we have probably have a wide spectrum of different explanations for why people are still ill. Yeah. 
after, but um, it'll depend on the individual. You know, the, when you get vaccinated and you're producing these lipid nanoparticles, uh, sorry, you're taking these lipid nanoparticles and you're producing the spike protein, there's no control over the amount of spike protein that's going to be produced from one individual to another individual. It depends on their 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 gender, their their uh, sorry, their sex. Depends on their um, metabolic rate, what other their diet, uh, their stress, all these different factors. So you can get these very dramatic differences from one person to another person on how much of that spike protein is actually produced and for how long it's being produced. Yeah. And then of course the, your previous exposures to the, either the virus or the vaccine can mean your inflammatory immune response to that will also be very dramatically different from person to person. So we get this, this situation where most people will become um, that get vaccinated will recover. They'll be perfectly fine. The vast majority of people, their body will heal. They'll get rid of those cells that are producing the spike protein with their immune systems to clean the, clean it out without any other assistance. Mm-hmm. But there will be a very small segment, maybe one and probably two or 300 that will be permanently affected, severely affected by these vaccines. That's mm-hmm. the reason why this technology has to be better developed, mm-hmm. better tested before we start giving it again to the general public. Yeah, and it was um, massively administered. Um, the very last question, she ends her article saying that unvaccinated people are more prone to die of complications from COVID. Is that true? What's the truth no, about there's that? No, there's no scientific data to support that statement whatsoever. People have said, you know, originally we were told that you take these vaccines, you won't get infected and you won't transmit. That was completely false. Mm-hmm. No, but no, no scientist is going to argue that someone who's been vaccinated isn't going to get COVID and spread it. I mean, 90, 90% plus of the people in the last two years that have gotten COVID have been vaccinated. So what's the point of this at this point right. in 2024? Why would you get injected? So so here's the thing. We have a virus that's been mutating over time to become more infectious and more benign. That means less likely to make you sick. Okay. At the same time, we've had everybody pretty much has been infected with this virus. And they have some degree of an immune response. And for most people, they actually have a very strong, robust immune response that is long lasting. So there's no way that you can actually do a scientific study that can clearly show that the vaccine itself reduces the symptoms of COVID-19. Because you've got a virus that's much more benign now, and you've got an a population that's much more immune to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how would you know? Right. There's no way, there's no study that's been done controlling so, for those variables. It's just a, it's just a myth basically that helps support those who really believe we're told that the vaccination would end this um, so-called pandemic. That's right. Yeah. And I think the data from what I can see This whole program has extended the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. It actually has 
probably endangered the health of our population. The response mm -hmm. that we have is worse than the virus. I mean, if you were yeah. somebody who was you know, under 30 years of age, your chances of dying from this virus was about one in a hundred thousand. And that would include people that have comorbidities like leukemia and all these other diseases. Mm -hmm. So young children, very much different from influenza, were very much protected from this disease. And the average age of someone in Canada that died from COVID-19 was 84. And the average life expectancy of someone in Canada from all diseases is 82. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can't argue really that the, those individuals that died from COVID-19, and first of all, you can take the numbers that we have and divide them in half. Mm. So people dying with COVID, mm -hmm. you know, half those people came into the hospital, not because they had COVID. But they tested positive. They tested positive. With a test, it's 90% inaccurate for false positives yeah. at the at the PCR what we call thermal cycle number that was used. Yeah. So so you can take those numbers and divide them in half. And then on top of that, what people died from wasn't the virus itself. It was more likely from pneumonia. Mm. And, and, you know, surprisingly, doctors held off from giving antibiotics that could have killed the pneumonia in those mm. people that had COVID-19 and the intubation that they received actually increased the chances of getting pneumonia infections. Why? So we did a lot of mistakes early yeah. on. And but tell me we were not doing this anymore. No, no. Okay. Actually, it's very interesting. Canada went and purchased over 20,000 of these intubators that were never used. Hmm, yeah. And, and in terms of educating the general population, you know what? I think most people figured it out by now. Because when you look at the number of times that people are now getting vaccinated, they're not taking the new vaccines. No. The new vaccines are developed for variants that have already gone extinct and mm -hmm. replaced by other variants. Probably it doesn't really make much difference, but you know, yeah. the reality is that that you know, we 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 threw away a billion dollars worth of vaccines at the end of 2022. Uh, yeah, and there's so much because the public's figured it out. The health professionals are stepping up their messages for people to get vaccinated. And there's yeah. a lot of articles that are coming out about how many lives were saved. Yeah. Because of the vaccine. You know, if you take, you know, Teresa Tam was one of the authors on this paper by Ogdanadol, which was, you know, published Canadian Medical Journal, which which basically had a um it's from essentially Health Canada. Mm -hmm. and they argued that had they not had people vaccinated and the restrictions that they did, an extra 800,000 people would have died. Now, to put that in perspective, adjusting for the size of the populations at the time, that's more Canadian deaths from World War I, the Spanish 1918 influenza pandemic, and World War II combined together oh my gosh <laughs> i mean come on <laughs> that's very far-fetched and yet everybody in canada we know from serological studies have been infected 
And yeah. most of them were infected before the vaccines were even around. And so, most of us didn't. Of course, it was bad. It was a flu, but yeah. you know, I, it, it was not the end of the world. I I know people who had uh, to go to the hospital, and but it's just a very very few. And it's part of life. And we've been saying that over and over. But when you want to live your life, you need to take risks. You you go outside. You never know what's going to happen. But are you going to stay trapped in your house for the rest of your days just in case something might happen? At some point, I think the way we handled this was just way too extreme. And now we're facing the consequences, of, especially for the kids. I've been very well, strong. I mean, you know, you, you, our... We've evolved over, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years to, in fact, even a starfish has an immune system. Hmm. Starfish have been on the planet for a billion years. Okay. Hmm. So our bodies are very well adapted to taking on, you know, new viruses and bacteria and fungi. We're yeah. surrounded. In fact, most people don't even realize that You know, you have 50 trillion cells in your body, but you also have about 40 or more trillion bacteria in your body. But you have about 300 um, trillion viruses in your body at all times. Wow. Most of them are benign. They actually, in mm -hmm. some cases, help you fight bacteria. Mm -hmm. And and the human body is, is adapted where... If it's not a real threat, then, you know, it tolerates it. And mm -hmm. so he, there's a natural, um, well-developed immune responses that we have that will protect most people if they have, you know, proper diet, exercise, they don't have comorbidities, they'll be just fine. And when you restrict yourself, you isolate yourself, you don't go out, you don't get exposed to these things on a regular basis, then your immune system starts to get weaker and weaker. This is the problem for people that are in, in nursing homes and that they don't go out or individuals that don't go out. Yeah. You have to go out mm -hmm. and constantly get re-exposed to these um, environmental agents. So That's that how your immune system stays your strong. Your immune system tuned up. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you don't, then when this next thing comes along, you're actually going to be much more likely to get sick. So that's why we're seeing now after some period of a few years of these restrictions right more people getting influenza and rsv mm -hmm. especially children because they've never been exposed to it before mm -hmm. so rather than doing what we thought about flattening the curve to, to to not overwhelm our hospitals we actually now actually concentrate the curve yeah because we we prevent people from actually being exposed to these things earlier on than they would when they're young children most children About 95% of children get RSV before they're two years of age, and mm. there's very few deaths from RSV. So, you know, this is a new RSV vaccine that's out there. Why? It's not really necessary, exactly. in part because if they did get RSV and they had symptoms, there are drugs that are actually mm -hmm. available to treat them very effectively. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to vaccinate your kid for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for everything that you just said. I was just listening and feeling a little sad because I remember in 2020, I was uh, watching a video that was um, the first doctors, they were from California. I don't know if you've seen this video. It was, his name was Dr. Erickson. 
Um, he's been deplatformed and he's been, I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> it was one of the first, it was in March, 2020. One of the first who was saying, listen, we have enough data to know it's not as dangerous as what sure. they say. And he was already saying that, um, it was, it would be damageable for the kids. Um, and that the um, collateral damages would be much worse. And now we are four years later and that's what we observe. So, you know, I think what you just said is in incredibly important. Um, and thanks for doing what you're doing. I don't want to say goodbye right now. I want to take one question from the public. It's been in my comments for a while. Maybe you're not comfortable with this. I've had uh, this question before. A lot of people in my comments are wondering what's going on with the vax shedding. What do you think about it? What do you know about it? Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, well, you know, when I had our clinical study with 4,500 people, at least a third of them I talked to directly on the phone about their situation. And many of them told me about this shedding phenomena, that they weren't vaccinated, but when they were with friends, sometimes they would feel ill, and, and then they would find that their friend was just vaccinated. Hmm. So, so we don't really understand the phenomena. I think there's three possibilities here. One is that these people, as I mentioned earlier, if you've just been vaccinated, and the virus is in the environment, you may in fact be more of a transmitter of the of the virus. So, so these people could be just being exposed to the actual virus mm -hmm. and getting a response. The lipid nanoparticles themselves travel throughout the body and that includes going to the salivary glands. And so it's likely that there may be shedding of some of the lipid nanoparticles, although they'd be very, very dilute in the environment that when it comes in, but that's a possibility. Then there's the spike protein itself. So when you have that inflammatory attack against the cells of your body that are producing the spike protein after the vaccine has gotten into those cells, uh, you generate these, these fragments of these cells. They're called exosomes. And so it's possible that it's actual little fragments about the size of a virus that are are being released with a spike protein on them and in people who have already had immunity this may be triggering an immune response in those individuals that are breathing in the the uh, exosomes we call them that have the spike protein on them i think in all of those scenarios it's not particularly dangerous mm -hmm. i think i think they're very dilute um, the spike protein can't reproduce. The immune system will settle down. Uh, and, and if anything, it'll give them a little bit of a boost for their immune system to stay mm -hmm. tuned up. So I don't think that there's really a... Data. Uh, a, a, a well, I don't think there's a threat. Right, right. I don't think there's any danger. From mm -hmm. That's the good news. There's a phenomenon that seems to exist. Many people have... Observed you know, it. ...sensed it and observed it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they need to be worried about it. Good. Well, thanks for taking time today. Thanks for everyone uh, that joined us live. Of course, this is still going to be online forever until it gets suppressed by YouTube or any other platform. But thanks for joining us today, guys, and stay safe. Thank you, Dr. Pelek. Thank you very much, Eloise. We're done. <laughs>